<clears throat> well, good morning. Happy New Year to you. It is uh, our first uh, Sunday of the new year. It's also the first Sunday of the month, <clears throat> which means that it's uh, time for us to celebrate the Lord's table, um, share in a time of Holy Communion, which is a reminder, a memorial of Christ's death on the cross for us, and to, to be able to express together um, as Christ's body that, uh, that wonderful reality of knowing that we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Can we turn on the lights up here? It's a little, it's a little dark up here. I'm coming from the shadows to you. Oh, there you go. He said, let there be light. Amen. All right. We are uh, concluding our time in the book of Romans. Well, actually, not, not fully concluding. We'll have a doxology. Um, uh, we can't quite fit everything in, so there'll be a doxology um, and next time we meet. But today, it is the final caution and encouragements of the book of Romans. And we'll be looking at the, the last section of the last chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 16, verses 17, 17 through 27 today. And as I mentioned, it is, uh, uh, it is Communion Sunday. And so we'll be taking of the elements. And uh, um, I will ask again, but if I forget, you could always try to get uh, um, um, George or one of the deacons um, or, or just get up and go towards the back. I think Ben has um, some of the elements that you could grab so that you could join us for communion at the conclusion of the message. But if you turn to Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 27, these are really final encouragements, and, and they come with caution in the sense that on the one hand, um, there are specific dangers to be aware of, and on the other hand, there are certain encouragements that should give every Christian heart. And uh, the, the simple, um, I think, outline this morning is this. Gospel dangers, verses 17 and 18. Gospel promise, verse 20. And then gospel partnership. Uh, a number of greetings from those that are part of uh, the party of Paul and that are greeting these Roman Christians and reminding them that, uh, that they are not alone in their Christian journey. So as we look uh, to this particular portion of Scripture, the, the hardest thing about uh, the finale of, uh, of these epistles, of these great books, is that Paul is trying to wrap up um, what has been this, this amazing uh, theological and pra practical roller coaster, just kind of telling us the, the highest highs and the lowest lows. That the great things of who God is and what He has accomplished in Jesus Christ and the depths of our depravity and our sin, our absolute need to turn to Him and Him alone for salvation. And after going through all of that, you think, well, how do you end a letter like that? Peace out, you know? XOXO. Uh, I think that's hugs, kiss, hugs, kiss, right? I think, right? Um, how do you end a letter like that? And Paul does it in a way that he gives, I think, one, a, a final kind of word of caution to be careful of some things that present a danger to the gospel and to gospel unity. And then to remind them that, that God will always provide grace and promises victory. And then, again, to remind them that it is not just God that is on their side, but God has given them others. Um, that there's a partnership and a body of believers, there's a family of, of Christians that we must learn to rely on. We are not individual, solo, um, lone ranger Christians. Right? We are in this, literally we are in this 
together in the body of Christ. So as we look to this final portion, let's, uh, let me read it to you, and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll try to unpack it um, as we go. Romans 16, starting in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother uh, Quartus, greet you. It's a strange way to end, I know, but let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. Um, for every provision that you have given to us, particularly, Lord, as we begin this new year, for the provision of Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, you had promised in ways that were somewhat mysterious in the Old Testament, but that was fully realized in the person of your Son, that when he came to live, to become a man, to live in this life, a perfectly holy life, and then to lay down that life, the life of the God-man, on our behalf, Lord, we see the light of the joy of the gospel message, the potential of having life when we can't deserve it, of casting our faith, our belief, our trust, and our entire dependence upon another, and to find that we can be forgiven of our sins because your wrath has fallen upon your own son. We thank you for that substitute and for the joy that that grants us. But we realize, Lord, that we are, we are not free of danger in this life, nor are we alone. And so as we look to these final words of Paul to the Roman Christians, may we be encouraged, Lord, to watch out for those things that divide us, that damage that doctrine of the gospel of grace that we have received. And may we be reminded constantly that you are still sovereign, and that you have granted to us a body of believers with whom we share this journey, with whom we find support, with whom we should find encouragement, exhortation, and sometimes even rebuke, so that we might grow together as a body of believers, honoring the Savior and making His name known. We praise you for your grace to us. We ask that you would bless this new year, that it would be one in which this church follows the things of Christ in a way that continues to cause growth and, uh, and bring honor um, to the glory of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel of salvation. We praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So cautions and encouragements. In an appropriate way, I think, to end any kind of a letter, especially one that is filled with so much theological truth and help. So Paul goes first to these dangers. There are dangers to the gospel, he would say. And he begins by telling them to watch out. The gospel dangers we're talking about specifically are divisions and deceptions. Look at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. 
I, I like the way that Paul puts this. On the one hand, in that first part of verse 17, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. And what I like about that is the first part, the, the verb for appeal, um, that, is, that is a gentle word. It is not a command. Paul's not saying, I demand this of you. He's trying to encourage them as brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's trying to appeal to them as family, as fellow Christians, as brothers and sisters who have been redeemed by the same Lord, and he's saying, I am appealing to you. It's the language of kindness, of gentleness. So the appeal is gentle, but the next word is strong. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out, and particularly to watch out for these troublemakers. Um, watch out is a strong word. It means to, uh, to keep a close eye on something. This is not so much that critical kind of looking for trouble eye. This isn't a witch hunt, all right? Looking for reasons why we are good Christians and those guys are not. In fact, that might fall great, more likely into the category of those that, are, that we're supposed to watch out for that cause divisions and create obstacles, all right? Instead, it is a watchfulness that means that we are looking to know, to watch if we are drifting. And particularly if we are drifting from gospel, truthful, right, theologically centered unity. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, that's gentle, watch out, that's very strong, for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. There are individuals, Paul is saying, whose intention is to cause divisions and create obstacles. The term divisions is an old word for standing apart. It means literally like if we're in a group, if your family's gathered, let's say for Christmas, right? And then for whatever reason, that one kid, right, has to just stand all by themselves. Or maybe it's grumpy dad or strange uncle, right? And he just has to go sit in the corner and brood, right? It's, it means to stand apart. And it, it, our English term for divisiveness or division is an excellent and accurate one. It is to be desensitized or, I'm sorry, des, des, I'm thinking of dissensions and trying to make it a verb. It is to be divided, right, from what should be your family, from your whole. It is to cause a, a, a rift between those that should stand together. It, the same word is used in Galatians 5. Remember Galatians 5 towards the end? There is the, uh, the works of the flesh. These are the things that living in the flesh, pursuing the things of the flesh. These are the sinful things that that produces. And then the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things that the Holy Spirit indwelling you produces in your life. We dwell often on the fruit of the Spirit, and we should. But division, or at least in Galatians 5.20, it's translated dissensions, is one of those works of the flesh. It's one of those fleshly Hall of Famers. It's one of those, if you want to demonstrate sinfulness and sinful conduct, this is the stuff that should be produced in your life. Division is a clear indication of there being a dialing back of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are individuals that cause divisions and create obstacles, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. The word for obstacles is one that we could translate stumbling block or maybe hindrance. Uh, 
And I think it's of, uh, interesting to note that in Romans 14, remember that whole um, section in Romans that we covered, we're talking about different consciences, right? And whether we are dealing with a, um, a younger believer or someone that's sensitive, and then we pass judgment on each other, like that kind of stuff, right? Romans 14, 13 there says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, listen now, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That's our term for obstacle. It, it's saying that this is, this is like what you're to watch out for. This divisive, contrarian attitude. Where some who are teachers or potentially leaders would come among us and say, listen, let's separate from those guys. Right? Or they're saying... Those individuals are not good enough Christians. Like, I, I don't know why they would do that. Would Christians do that? Then maybe we shouldn't be with those guys. It's interesting to me because when the, the, the issue of what these Roman Christians should be aware of arises here towards the conclusion of this letter, Paul says, I'm going to appeal to you, right, gently, to watch out strongly, for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. It is, it, is it theological? It is theological. But its net effect is divisiveness, judgmentalism, and a breaking of the fellowship of those that are genuine believers. Isn't it interesting that his emphasis is on the disunifying nature of false teaching? He's literally trying to tell them, listen, what you need to be aware of, what you need to be afraid of, is not just falsehood. Falsehood will come. And as we read the other letters in the New Testament, it's clear that in many of the churches, falsehoods have already started to creep in. But Paul here is emphasizing that one of the great characteristics and dangers of falsehoods is that they're contrary, yes, to the doctrine that you have been taught, but their outworking will be division and obstacles to faith. The thing to take from that is that biblical truth promotes unity. Error, falsehoods, heresies often create division and divisiveness. When we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ... It promotes a sense of unity. When we proclaim the truthfulness of Scripture and a reliance on what God says, not in my opinion, it promotes a unity in dependence upon God and what He has revealed to us. The, the gospel unites simply because the gospel is a gospel about grace and faith, not, not about human ability and works. Right? I mean, the entire concept that we're about to celebrate at the Lord's table is that what I could not do except by paying eternally a tormentous right, existence in eternal hell, that kind of wrath that I deserve, I cannot atone for in myself. Christ has atoned for freely and fully. So that I can't even make myself a little better, a little more deserving I deserve none of it. So, okay, well then, how about if I, I'll stop cursing, right? I'll stop throwing things at my neighbor, 
You know, I'll stop kicking the dog. How about if I put away some of these particular sinful things? Then Jesus will save me. He will not. He will save you if you recognize your sinfulness and plead upon Him and upon Him alone by faith, by grace, in Christ. Anything we add to that diminishes the power of the gospel because it is all grace to us. So if you think in those terms, then it makes sense why biblical truth, and in particular the gospel message, unites us. Because none of us deserve to be here. None of us deserve to be called the righteousness of God. And yet we have the righteousness of God through Christ. So if that's the case, then there's nobody here to brag about anything. You say, yeah, but you know, some of the elders, you know, they know some more scripture than you. Well, fine. They're not more saved than you. Right? In God's eyes, are they more righteous than you? There is a righteousness that could stand before a holy and all-seeing God, and it is a righteousness that is Christ Jesus covering us and forgiving us our sins. It's interesting because Paul seems to suggest that, that, that the, natural, uh, the natural consequence or a causal effect of genuine doctrine, of biblical truth, the, the kind of doctrine that you have been taught will be unity. In the singular, right, the, the, the particular characteristic of falsehoods, of things that promote self-righteousness or licentiousness or whatever form of sinfulness that it's contrary to the gospel message, that the thing that, that will characterize them is it will be divisive and it'll cause obstacles to the very things that you have been taught. Avoid them. False teachers are peddlers of false truth claims things that are contrary to the gospel and scripture, but you'll know them because of their disunity, because they cause divisiveness. And we should always be suspicious of any new doctrine that causes divisiveness. We should be leery of anything that is new in the first place. All right? We have a faith that has been once delivered to the apostles and is the same faith that we find in the scriptures. We have the same God. We have the same Savior. We have a single means of salvation by trusting in Him and Him alone, believing in His grace alone, and that, that is all that we have. And so if there is something new, we should be suspicious. If it is new and divisive, then we should definitely be suspicious. And to the degree that, as Paul concludes here in this verse, that we should avoid such things, such people. Watch out for divisive contrarians. They don't smell like sheep. They don't look and sound like Christians. And they certainly don't sound and look like our Savior Jesus Christ. The second gospel danger that is, that is mentioned here is the deceivers themselves. Avoid self-serving deceivers. Look at verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. The four that begins this verse in verse 18 gives us the explanation, the reason for what has been said previously. He's saying, watch out for those who cause divisions, obstacles, right, contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them because, or for, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. 
This is the explanation. The phrase, such persons, I think is, is, is interesting because it suggests that it may be potentially different groups. It, it, it's not. He doesn't say, he doesn't, he doesn't use a pronoun that's more particular. He doesn't say, you know, um, for that group, right, that people will cause these things. That individual or those, right, that party do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, such persons. And he says such persons because he's trying to say there'll be a diversity, not a particular group that he's addressing, Judaizers or antinomians, but he's saying there'll always be some, there'll always be different guys that will come, such kind of individuals that will be diverse enough that all the churches in every generation will have to be mindful to keep an eye out for them. What is demonstrated about such persons at least in verse 18, is that they are slaves, but not of our Lord Jesus. They're slaves of their own appetite. The term that is used there, do not serve, is not, is not are many different you know, New Testament terms for service or ministry or being a house steward, etc. This is the term that comes from that, that, uh, uh, that noun for slave, doulos. It's the verbal form of that. It is implying, and if you put that next to, if you put slave next to master, right, or Lord, you kind of get the immediate kind of uh, um, interaction between these two concepts. There's a Lord and there is his slave, his servant, the one that he owns. So he's saying, so Paul is saying, such persons are not slaves of the Lord, the master, Christ. And that's why he puts Lord Christ to emphasize the lordship of the Messiah, that he is the king and he is the Lord of lords. They don't serve him. They're not his servants. They're not his slaves. They are instead slaves to their own appetites. It implies that there is a slavery, a service, that every person that claims to be a Christian has bowed their knee to a Lord. So there's a slavery, a service that we have all we have all given knee to. We've sworn fidelity, faithfulness to a master. Christian, if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, that doesn't just mean, oh, Jesus, thank you so much for forgiving my sins. Now I'm going to go make some more sins. Right? Romans, Romans 6 particularly said, no. We have broken our slavery to sin and self and given that allegiance, that fidelity to a new master, a new Lord. And so it's characteristic of Christians that they serve their one Lord, Jesus Christ. But not such persons as this. They don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ as all Christians should. Instead, they serve their own appetites. Um, the phrase literally says they serve their own bellies. It's the same exact phrase that is used in Philippians 3.19 when it talks about those whose God is their belly or the God is their appetite. I'm not sure if it's talking about actual food. It could. If it's talking about actual food, then perhaps they're gluttonous or perhaps Paul is referencing like Romans 14.20 where he says, for the sake of food, you are destroying the work of God. You're destroying your fellow Christian, right? Because of what I can eat or what I can't eat. And so you're, you're more controlled by your physical appetites than by your spiritual unity in, in, in gospel redemption. Uh, 
That could be, but more likely, I think he's using it in the sense of appetites generally, that they're after something that is not about service and honor of Christ. They're after something that is about service and honor to themselves. And that's why I'm saying you need to avoid these self-serving deceivers. Right? They're self-serving, self-enslaved. They're all in for themselves. Now listen, good Christian. I realize that even as I say that and we walk that through in our minds by way of application, we catch ourselves constantly, right? Making choices and doing things that are for ourselves. We find ourselves constantly, right? Kind of taking Christ off the throne of our lives and placing ourselves and our desires and enthroning them again. What's the difference between us and these false teachers? The difference is that we come to repent again and again and again and depend upon him. We don't give in to that. We don't establish that as our lifestyle. We don't, we're not satisfied in saying, well, I did the best I can. Lord, what can I do? I'm a selfish person. Just give me all the stuff I want. No, we keep fighting. We keep growing. We keep depending upon Christ, upon his word, looking towards the Holy Spirit and his transformational power, right? We keep looking to our God and our Savior because in the end, our service is to the Lord. We are his and not our own. And when we begin to understand that, we see how different the life of faith is from what every other false teacher wants to bring to the table. In the end, even if they seem really, right, really sacrificial. They're like, you know, they're like serving the poor in the, in the poorest part of the world. They're doing all this stuff. If it is for their own appetites, meaning it's satisfying their own pride, their, their own sense of duty, their own sense of something, if it is their own and that's what's underlined, it is not Christian. If it's for the glory of Jesus Christ, do anything and everything that is your heart to do and do it as thoroughly and as, and as you know, vibrantly and with as much energy as you can. Fail greatly or succeed greatly. It does not matter because you are the Lord's and your appetite is to see His glory fulfilled in your life. That's what a new year presents to us. A chance to reset, to evaluate, to think how well did I glorify Christ and how much of my life last year was spent worrying about myself. Because that's what false teachers are. Self-serving deceivers. They've said a lot about you know, what they are, but we also get their methods. Look at the second part of verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and here's the next part, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Two words that are compound words built off of logos, our New Testament word for, for speech and for argument, for, for rational language use, right? Um, the first is smooth talk. It's a word that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but it's a word well known in terms of amongst the Romans. There was a Latin saying, that, uh, that, that for this particular word, that this word refi- refers to someone who speaks well, but does ill. In other words, the idea of smooth talk is never positive. You know, sometimes I would joke around and go, oh, look at that little kid, man, it's such a smooth talker, right? 
And we just kind of saying that, you know, he says really nice stuff. He's real sweet, etc. But that's not what this word means. It means that you're speaking words that seem very nice, but that intentionally breaks or causes ill or problems or breaks down relationships. It's the language of a good man hypocritically used by a bad man. That's by, um, by Shedd in his great commentary. The language of a good man, hypocritically used by a bad man. That's smooth talking. The second word is flattery, and that's a common word in the New Testament. But this might surprise you. This word, right, is, is, it literally means good words, and it's used in the New Testament predominantly in a positive sense. It's the word that we would, in its right context, in a good context, translate as giving a blessing, a word of goodness, right? A kind word, etc., right? It's, it's a good word. But when used in a negative context, as it, it can occasionally be, it is used in the sense of flattery, a good word used for false purposes. That's what flattery is. You're saying something that's really nice so you can get something good. Right. And let me let me say something. This is not talking against the use of good words. Um, Proverbs 15 one tells us that a soft answer can turn away wrath. There's some great wisdom in that. Right. Don't get all mad because they're mad. How many of you guys ever use the phrase? Yeah, I'm mad. You made me mad. Right. Right. Or you being mad has made me mad. Or, you know, trying to explain why your anger is appropriate because that guy got angry first. All nonsense, right? A soft anger can turn away wrath. So there's, there's, there's good words that I think the scriptures would appeal to us to use. Uh, Proverbs 15.4 similarly says that a gentle tongue is a tree of life. It, it's not just that it gives you good fruit, but that it gives you a tree that could be revitalizing that could renew relationships. Our tongue can be used for great danger and for destruction, like James 3 talks about, and it can also be used for great healing and to be a source of life. That's both encouraging and discouraging, all right? The potential that we have. But this is what, this is what these self-serving deceivers do. This is how they get to the heart, it says. They deceive the hearts of the naive. They, 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 basically seduce or change they sell something through smooth talk and flattery that is not genuine but it's enough to poison the hearts of those that are naive the term for naive uh, is as a word that is kakos which is 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 evil or bad with the alpha privative it is the the unbad The, the idea of the word is that they are individuals that don't necessarily have this evil intention this term is often used in the new testament of characters that are without beguile they don't have some hidden agenda they're not that guy that goes hey how's it going you know like in the movies certain dudes show up and the way that they talk you go dude that's the bad guy man that's so clearly right because there's some guile in his eyes and his manner it's like this is the opposite this is the person that doesn't have that it's the unwary the innocent. They are innocent, but they are young and innocent and probably too simple to realize right, that they're being deceived by smooth talking and by flattery. Words are used to take their hearts away 
from the clarity and the truthfulness of Scripture and doctrine. What is implied as the opposite of these false teachers is one, there is a service that all Christians should be absolutely committed to in faithfulness. It is a service to our master, the Christ. There's a building up of one another that should take place by kind words, but not words with this channel, this back door to try to get something we want from them, but genuine, truthful words spoken in love. Right? That phrase, truth in love, speaking truth in love is from Ephesians 4.15. And there it says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. How different that statement is than what these false deceivers are doing. We are to use our words to speak truthfully, but to speak truthfully and lovingly, graciously, so that others can grow up in the things of Christ and that we can grow up in the things of Christ. Later on in Ephesians 4, verse 25, it puts it this way. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehoods, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. See, isn't it interesting that even there, it's like using words in order to build up each other and we are members of one another. It's the building up of a community that we are all unified in because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, avoid those individuals that are self-serving and that are deceiving hearts by the use of the cleverness of their speech. Cling to gospel purity. Cling to scriptural truth. Speak truth, even when truth is hard to speak. But in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of love, in a spirit that, that, that commands the graciousness of our Savior Jesus Christ himself. Gospel dangers. Watch out for divisive contrarians. Avoid self-serving deceivers. And then on the positive, verse 19, promote wisdom and innocence. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Remember earlier in verse 18, I said that the, word, the preposition for kind of gives an explanation. Here too, verse 19, the preposition for is repeated, and it's meant to give uh, an explanation. An explanation of what? Why would he say, because your obedience is known to all? And I think he means it this way. You are an excellently obedient group of believers. And in case you didn't realize that, that spirit of humble willingness to submit and follow makes you particularly significant as a target. You're exactly the kind of people that a wolf in sheep's clothing are looking for. So that's why he says, because it's because your obedience is known to all. That's a phrase, known to all, that, that means that something has arrived to its destination. It's like saying your obedience has reached or landed all over the world. Like all the other Christians know about the reputation of the Roman Christians, their sacrificial obedience, their kindness to one another, their willingness to open their arms and their homes and their lives. And he says, your obedience is known to all. So that I rejoice over you. I commend that. I love that. I am thankful to the Lord for that. But in the second half of verse 19, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. I want you to be wise and innocent. 
it is so significant that the word for wisdom here is uh, is sophos. It's the word um, of uh, of mental ability, right, or mental capacity um, that speaks of skillfulness. Some, sometimes this word is translated clever. Sometimes it's translated skillful. Often it's translated wisdom, and sometimes it's, it's even translated experienced. You get it. This is the this is the wisdom that is experiential. It is about the, the, the skillfulness of someone, right? The artistic ability or the, or the eye, the individual that's good at something. You know when you are experienced enough at something that you're really good at it? Um, I like good coffee, and George and I went to, you know, um, one of the coffee houses nearby, and, uh, man, they, they just make good coffee. And so George got a pour-over, you know, and the guy makes the pour-over, and, and he, just, he just does it like, like it's no big deal. He's experienced. He has a wisdom about how he does, he does it, and it was really good. So I buy the same beans, and I go home, and I make that coffee, and you know what? It doesn't taste as good. What is happening? The answer is I don't know. But that guy has a skillfulness. The barista has a skillfulness I do not yet possess. I probably need to make pour-overs like 20, 30 a day for, for a few weeks until I get to that level. But same beans. Doesn't taste as good. He has wisdom that I'm very envious to have, right? Wisdom in skillfulness. And skillfulness in what? I want you to be wise, skillful as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. See, I love that. He is saying, learn to be artistic, skillful, creative, unusually capable in doing anything that is considered good in the eyes of God. Is there some good you could do to a community, to a relative, to a coworker, to fellow believer of Christ or a brother or sister in this congregation? Is there some good that you could do? Then do it and do it in a way that you are getting better at doing good. Can you be better at encouraging people, at praying for people? See, it's not necessarily of serving them by giving them something. It's not just gift giving. It can be that. Some of you guys are probably bad gift givers, right? That's revealed every Christmas. Bunch of bad gift givers among us, right? Maybe you need to grow on that. That's great. But it's not just that. It's the use of your words. It's the use of encouragement. It's the use of your time in terms of prayer. The use of your time in terms of scripture. I mean, Whatever is good in the eyes of God, can you become more skillful in that? That is the wisdom. That is the skillful wisdom of doing whatever is good. And the opposite, Paul's saying, and then be innocent as to what is evil. The word for innocent is literally to be unmixed. So you get immediately what Paul's talking about. He's not saying, you know, go around, you know, kind of, um, you know, bubble wrapping your whole existence your christian life figuring out how to keep yourself separate from the world by not not doing anything in the world just staying at home right quarantining for spiritual reasons because of spiritual coronaviruses right now he's talking about you need to live in the world certainly but you want to desire to be innocent to be unmixed the term can be translated to be simple you know like when you buy um um, I don't know, different food things. Y- you want it to be simple. Like if, if I buy milk, I just want it to be 100% milk. And it's the funniest thing to me nowadays, right, 
that there are things that, that we say is 100% something. And I'm like, okay, that's good. Because I, I don't know what it was before, but I, I think if I buy orange juice, I just want 100% orange juice. I don't want people to put motor oil in there. I just, just want orange juice. And then to get to another level, right, you say it's 100% orange juice, not from concentrate. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm not sure what concentration has to do with this, but all right, that, uh, that sounds better. It's 100% orange juice, and it's not from concentrate. And then you go a step further. It's 100% orange juice, not from concentrate, and it's organic. And then you start thinking, well, is there oranges that are inorganic? Inorganic oranges making juice, right? That's crazy. There's no such thing. I don't, I don't know what all these things mean, but what are they trying to market to us? Simplicity. And simplicity not meaning that it's not complicated. Simplicity meaning that it is pure. That it is focally, right, undiluted. It, it is exactly what it claims to be. And this is the goal of the Christian life as far as sin. To be innocent in the sense of we're trying to be as pure as we can be. Not to stick our head in the sand and pretend there's no sin around us or to have no compassion for sinners caught in sinfulness, but to ourselves be careful and mindful to be unadulterated by the world and the stains the world has upon our lives. Not naive, but single-mindedly simple. Skillful, wise, in that which is good, Innocent, single-mindedly simple as to that which is evil. That's the goal of sanctification. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul puts it this way. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Our Savior Jesus said that in Matthew 10, 16 as well, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And I think all of Scripture speaks to that same kind of idea. So this is the great caution, and I know we took a lot of time in that, right? This is the gospel dangers. We'll go to the gospel promise. This will be short. It's a uh, a single verse, two sentences in verse 20. And the gospel promise speaks of victory and grace. Victory and grace. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's a simple promise of the victory of the God of peace. And and I like it because because Paul intentionally um, refers to God's attribute of peace. Why? Because the false teachers are going to bring the opposite of that. And in contrast to their divisiveness, the divisions and the obstacles that they're about to bring, God is the God of peace. Right, And I remind you that peace in the New Testament and in the Old Testament is a word about holistic tranquility. It's not our English term for peace, which is really a negation of, of hostilities. In other words, we think of peace, the word as a negative idea, the absence of war. But in the scriptures, it speaks of peace as that holistic positive idea. Like things like tranquility, um, well-being, stability wholeness it's the shalom and that's literally um, the hebrew term for peace it's the god of shalom it's the god of peace of wholeness well-being he will crush satan he will soon crush satan that's a strong word 
it means to, to trample underfoot. And it kind of, it, the word kind of reminds us, right, of the promise of, uh, of Genesis 3 that, uh, um, that the serpent will bruise, right, that seed, that, that Savior's heel, but that that Savior will crush the serpent's head. It's, it's that same idea, that same concept, even it's different, different words, the idea that God will win. But here's the part that's interesting. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. So in other words, all the, the falsehoods that divide us and destroy us from the inside, that'll be gone. God will make his holistic peace fall upon us and Satan will be completely crushed. Satan, the term adversary, he will be completely crushed. But look at the last phrase of that. Under your feet. I expect this, the phrase to be, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. But it says under your feet. Paul is implying that, that the victory of God is our victory. That his intention is not just to defeat Satan, but to defeat him in such a way that the Christians receive the honor of that victory. That he's the one crushing and it'll be under our feet that the devil will have his last breath. God's intention is for us to share in the glory of that victory in a way that almost feels like God won us our victory over Satan so that we are the ones standing over that defeated foe. The God of, fee, of, of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then the last blessing, right? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I want to say a couple things, right, on verse 20. One, I think it's important that we realize that the first phrase, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, that's a statement. That, that, that's a prophetic statement, not a prayer or a wish. It's not, may the God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet. It's a clear statement that Paul intends to, to give encouragement, right? This gospel promise to his brothers and sisters in Christ in the, the churches, the church in Rome. He is saying the God of peace will indeed, future tense, soon crush Satan under your feet. He'll do that for you. It's prophecy, not prayer. That's where our hope comes from, the indicatives. This is who God is. This is what Christ has done. This is what we trust. This is what we believe. There is the prayer part, and that's the second part. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's implied there, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Not because it may not be. But he's saying that this is my wishful, my prayerful kind of blessing upon you. It's a blessing for grace. It's a promise of victory, the first part. And it's a blessing, um, uh, a word of grace for Christ's grace, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. A reminder, as Paul has unpacked throughout Romans, that it is his grace and his grace alone that leads us and keeps us and blesses us and is the means by which we continue to grow. Not in and of ourselves. There's a gospel danger that we talked about already, right? Right? Point one was that there's a gospel danger. And that's that false teachings could cause divisions and deceptions among us. Gospel promise is that God, the God of peace, will grant us victory. 
he will do it. Not we will do it. Not even we will do it in his power. Other places in scripture do say something like that. But that God would do it. He will crush Satan. And he will crush Satan under our feet so that the victory becomes ours. That's the promise. And then there's a prayerful blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And all of it, verse 20, is meant to impact us in the same way that verse 17 and 19 tells us is the opposite, right? The false teachers are going to promote some kind of self-satisfying religion. They're going to say that these are the things that you need to do. These are the ways that you do it. These are the X, Ys, and Zs. These are, these are the things that make you more spiritual, more good, more godly, more something. And Paul is saying, may you be reminded of the truth that your faith has been latched to that the God of peace will bring victory and that the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient. I think it's a good New Year's blessing and reminder for us that there's always going to be a danger to our faith. There is. And when it comes doctrinally or whether it comes in other spiritual forms, one of its gravest forms is that it causes divisions, deceptions, and it damages us relationally. We, we can't let, right, politics, fear of diseases, or lack thereof of fear of diseases, right? We can't, we can't let other things that are secondary and is temporal or that is just about this life alone crowd the, or cloud our judgment away from that which is the most significant, and that is that every person here is a sinner, that does not deserve the salvation of Jesus Christ. And that the only reason why any can claim to be righteous before the eyes of a holy judge, an all-knowing holy judge, who cannot tolerate even a single sin in his presence, how are we to stand before that judge? By the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because he has paid for our sins in full. And if it is by God's grace through our faith in Him alone, that we are justified and saved, then be reminded again that there is no resolution that will make you more godly. All right? There might be some resolutions you should make and that will help you that, that way. But I'm saying the resolution itself, your, your willpower itself, you're, you know, saying no to something or saying yes to something or telling others that they should say yes to something or say no to something. None of that in and of itself is power. The power is God, the God of peace, who has promised that he will give us victory over sin and Satan. And the means by which all things become ours in Christ is through his grace. So it's appropriate that, that he ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you we'll end there there's a whole list of of individuals who want to send their greetings right and we'll look at that next time we're together as well as the final doxology but that is the blessing and the promise of god and the grace of our lord jesus christ for us and what an appropriate way for us to kind of enter into the new year to think about trusting in God, the God who has granted to us reconciliation and peace and the trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ, not just, not just for the forgiveness of sins, but to sustain us in anything and everything that could come against 